Well, good evening. Good to have you here tonight. Welcome. Uh, we're going to get started with Acts chapter 20, kind of back up slightly where we left off last week, but uh, I want to pick up immediately and kind of gain some new ground with that, see uh, if we can get through. We have uh, the last part of ecclesiology to get through, the doctrine of the church, and then uh, we'll move on to charismatology, study on spiritual gifts, study that um, should be very fresh if you're staying for the 7.30 hour because we've been dealing with more advanced uh, levels related to that, but we will take the time to work our way through on a basic, uh, uh, the basic level to go through those spiritual gifts. Where did I say we were turning? Acts chapter 20. Here we go. Acts chapter 20. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, and that we're prepared to handle eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. And Father, we thank you for this class, uh, for the blessing that we have to teach basics once again, the privilege that we have to study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, for these students here tonight that some have never had this basic doctrine before and some have had it over and over and over again, Father. And, And every time is a blessing. I thank you for it. Always a blessing, Father, to be refreshed on the truth of your word. We call upon your faithfulness tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are dealing with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And uh, in this, of course, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, a called out body or an assembly. And uh, as we deal with it here, uh, we're dealing with the politics or the polity, if you will, the leadership comprising of the de- overseers and the deacons. And um, we left off dealing with this concept of elders and overseers and how they're used interchangeably. So um, if I can pick up in the notebook where we left off. In this section here that's called Gifts, Offices, and Maturity Statuses, I think labels are useful. Category labels are useful. And so keeping these, these concepts in our thinking that a spiritual gift is a spiritual gift, and we all have at least one. Every believer has a gift. Offices, though, are very precise. They're very specific. In the office of the overseer, the office of the, of the deacon, they're the only offices that we have that are laid out clearly, uh, explicitly in, uh, in the New Testament. And then the concept of maturity status. What, it mean, what does it mean to get older? What does it mean to, to, uh, to grow from baby to adolescent to mature? Because when we talk about the mature man, we talk about the mature woman, we're talking about the elders. We're talking about the elder men, the elder women, and, and the New Testament addresses them as well. And so uh, we want to be clear on, on our terminology because I think failure to do that leads to what we've seen throughout 2,000 years of church history. Uh, A failure to distinguish the terms and rightly divide them appropriately has led to some tug-of-wars that I think have been unnecessary the whole time between the elder terminology and the bishop terminology, between the Episcopal form of governance and and the Presbyterian form of governance, and that in reality the New Testament shows us a... uh, uh, a blending of the two shows us that yes we have elders in the assembly and yes we have overseers in the assembly and so there shouldn't be a tension between them and we shouldn't have a an arm wrestling match or a tug of war between the, the two uh, offices or the two concepts because one's an office and one's a maturity status and then we can realize there's a lot of overlap between the expressions and uh, 
perhaps church history might have gone differently maybe (laughs) if uh, that understanding had held sway all those years ago. Um, But we are where we are, and so this is what we're going to deal with here tonight. And so uh, understand a gift is a grace thing. It's given the moment you're saved. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Uh, But an office is something different. An office or a ministry, by the way, is something different. Ministries open and close. Ministries you can qualify for or be disqualified for. In fact, you can discredit the ministry and lose future ministry because of that. Whereas a gift is without repentance. A gift is given and and never taken away. You can't lose your gift any more than you can lose your salvation, as we understand it. And so uh, these things are hopefully uh, also useful to, uh, to delineate. So spiritual gifts are given by grace in the moment of salvation. You can't earn or deserve it. Offices, however, an office of overseer, the office of deacon, they are described with qualifications and disqualifications. And so a man can blow it, and he can discredit the ministry, and he can be removed from his pulpit, and he can forsake that ministry. Um, and he'll continue to be a pastor teacher to the end of his days, but for this time, he's removed from ministry until God sees fit to humble him and bring him to repentance and, and perhaps, or not, restore him someday as, uh, as the Lord sees fit. Uh, we'll, we'll look at Acts 20 in a moment, but let me just grab Philippians 1.1 1, 1 while it's on my mind. Um, the introduction to Philippians is useful for us because it does delineate these offices. Uh, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. And so here's a great definition of, of a local church. It's saints that are gathered together at a locality. It's saints that, are, that have covenanted together to love one another and, and grow in the Word of God and operate as a flock. And this is what God describes as a lampstand in the book of Revelation. There's a lampstand that's planted in a locality. And in this case, it's Philippi. And so everyone is a saint, If you're a born-again believer, then you are sanctified, you are set apart, you are a saint in Christ, a saint by calling. And then specifically, out of all those saints then, some serve as deacons and some serve as overseers. And this is the leadership or the, uh, the offices within a local church, the office of overseer and the office of deacon. All right? And there, uh, there we have it. And so those two, over, those two offices then are the ones that are spelled out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're the ones that are spelled out in Titus, for example, when we have the overseer and we have the deacon. Uh, verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3 is the overseer. Verses 8 through 13 is the office of the deacon in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. All right, now let me skip ahead through stuff that we covered and then get to where we left off. Um, related to these things. Now, the term elder and overseer are used in parallel. That means that they are related. They are interrelated in certain ways, and they are unrelated in other ways. They are not pure synonyms. Although when they are used in parallel, we have to understand them appropriately. When they're not used in parallel, we want to understand why not? Okay, if they're not used in parallel, well, then uh, is this an aspect that makes them uh, that, that helps us to understand how they're not purely synonymous? And so, in Acts chapter twenty, you can spot the elders there that are brought to Paul from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And he's on his journey to Jerusalem. He's traveling and he's he docks long enough in Miletus to have them come to him. 
He's not going to walk all the way into Ephesus and risk staying there too long. Uh, he's going to stay at Miletus, and they're going to come to him. And he calls to them the elders of the church. Notice it's plural elders, one church. All right, and that's important. Uh, that, that is vital for us to recognize. And, and he starts to preach to them. And in the context of this, we have a message that takes us all the way down to verse 28 and, belong, and beyond. And there's no change of context anywhere in the middle here. Take my word for it, or don't take my word for it. Read the verses yourself later on. But from verse 17 to verse 28, it's the same audience that he's speaking to. And in verse 28, he calls them overseers, the elders that he was addressing from verse 17. He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's the connection. Elders are called overseers, and when they're called overseers, notice what their function is to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so now here are these three dominant terms that I think um, catch all the attention in all of our studies when, when, uh, when we get together to try to study leadership in a local church, because we have the elder terminology, we have the, the bishop terminology, and we have the shepherding terminology, right? For a pastor teacher, the, the pastor is the shepherd. And it is a shepherding function is the reason why God, the Holy Spirit took those elders and made them overseers in Ephesus, as this passage is describing. So there's an interrelationship between these two terms. Neither term is a gift. There's no gift of elder. But you grow to that maturity status. You go from a babe to the adolescent to the, to the elder. Or if you prefer in First John, there's the uh, young men, right? There's the, the children, little children, the young men, and the, and the fathers that are addressed there in First John. And so whatever terminology you want to use, we got the concept in the New Testament that we're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So neither term is a gift, elder is a maturity status, and overseer is an office. The elders of verse 17 are called overseers in verse 28, and they are expected to shepherd the flock. Likewise, you can look at Titus, Titus 1, verse 5 and verse 7. And in verse 5, he's expected to appoint elders, and then in verse 7 it says, for the overseer must be. Notice that? Also notice that elders is plural, but overseer is singular in uh, verse 7. All right? The overseer is singular in 1 Timothy chapter 3, constantly. And that, that becomes a, a vital study as well. Because we may have a plurality of elders, but we'll want to recognize that the office may be, may, doesn't have to be, but may be a single office. And that bothers some folks. All right, and we want to discuss that as well when we talk about plurality of elders versus um, singularity of office, of overseer, or singularity of right-hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And that uh, will be clear as well, hopefully, by, by the time we leave here tonight. Uh, another passage that relates these terms very well is 1 Peter chapter 5, where we have elders that are addressed in verse 1. Uh, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. He calls himself a fellow elder. Now we know he's an apostle by gift, but he calls himself a fellow elder here in 1 Peter 5.1 and witness of the sufferings of Christ. And he tells them to shepherd the flock of God among you. It's the same shepherding function we had in Acts chapter 20. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. 
And that's a verb cognate to the noun we're looking at with, when we talk about the overseers in Acts chapter 20 or Titus or First Timothy and so forth. So the elders of 1 Peter 5 are commanded to shepherd and oversee the flock. So these are the, the texts that we look at when we try to unravel the whole skein of, of, uh, of, of yarn, right? We realize, all right, there's, there's something to unravel with respect to this because these terms are interrelated, no question. But are they pure synonyms or are there distinctions to be found? And that's, of course, what we conclude as we put this all together. All right. Now, I think I can slow down as I believe we left off here when we talk about... um, We're going to talk about equipping when we get to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And a concept here that um, I could be wrong on. It's, It's a thought. It's an idea, uh, and I would throw it out for anyone to discuss or, or um, dispute or uh, ask questions of. Um, even though an, el- an overseer slash elder may have any gift, and so let's, let's stop with that. What, what spiritual gift does a man have to have to grow to maturity? What, what, what spiritual gift does a woman have to have to grow to maturity, <laughs> okay? To, to become the older woman that's to encourage the younger woman or the older man that encourages the younger man. All gifts should be growing. Every gift should reach the, the maturity status of elder. Um, what spiritual gift should a believer have to serve in the office of overseer? Okay, and, and, and typically, no one even thinks about it. They just say, well, obviously, that's the pastor-teacher gift. Well, wait a minute. It's not so obvious. Because when you go, again, you go back to First um, Timothy chapter 3, if a, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, does a fine work he desires to do, and you start to read those qualifications there, there's nothing in that, those qualifications that says what spiritual gift he has to have. Nothing in there says he has to be a pastor teacher, or he has to be an evangelist, or he has to be a leader, or he has to be an exhorter, or he has to be... It doesn't say. In fact, I think... The expression able to teach, where is that? In verse 2, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Well, that's kind of (laughs) okay. You know, that phrase is almost nonsensical if we insist that this paragraph is outlining a pastor-teacher spiritual gift. See, well, able to teach is kind of built into the pastor-teacher spiritual gift, right? Because it's the empowerment to shepherd and the empowerment to teach. So, the conclusion is, by the way, there's nothing in this passage, there's nothing in Titus, there's nothing anywhere in the New Testament that tells us what spiritual gift an overseer must have in a local assembly. And although many of them, especially in our circles uh, of churches of our nature, will have a pastor-teacher gift in that office, uh, that's not always the way it has to be, nor is it always the way it's always been. See. And uh, in Kansas, I mentioned uh, the, the Parkerville Baptist Church up there for years and years. The, 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 the number one guy there was an evangelist by gift. He was senior to Ralph. And when Ralph was in town, he, he operated as an assistant, operated as an associate. Um, his gift was pastor teacher, but uh, he served under a, an evangelist by gift. See, And there was no question that the evangelist by gift was the man that was the right hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ serving in the office of overseer for that local assembly. All right. So um, 
when you go through these qualifications here, it doesn't say what gift they must have. It says what their character traits are. And you'll notice these are the character traits of a mature believer. What's described here is an elder by maturity status. See, in, uh, in this temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And uh, in the aspects there, not a new convert, it says in verse 6. You don't want a babe in Christ pastoring a church. He needs time to grow up. Now, he might grow under another pastor in the process, and that's how it works. Now, back to the uh, notebook. And where I say it's open for dispute or it's open for um, discussion, any gift may serve. However, the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher is most supernaturally adapted to the shepherding expectations of the overseer-elder. And, and that I don't think is disputable. I think the gift of pastor-teacher is suited, supernaturally suited. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit empowering the shepherding function of that gift. And since elder overseers are expected to shepherd, that gift, more than any other gift, is most naturally or supernaturally adapted and suited to those expectations. Also, there are actually two present-day gifts which may propel a man into the overseer office faster than other gifts. If you want to think of it as a fast track or think of it as whatever, on an accelerated basis, the, the evangelist and the pastor-teacher may find themselves uh, vested in that office of overseer at younger biological ages than other gifts, say, uh, simply because of the nature of those gifts, the nature of those ministries, and the kind of conflict they go through, the kind of growth track that they are placed on when they are engaged in those particular functions. And so when we talk about the equipping gifts of the evangelist and the pastor teachers, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12, he gives some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, Right? Those are the four equipping gifts from the early church, two of which are now expired, but two of which continue on. The evangelist and the pastor-teacher continue on for the totality of the church age. Apostles and prophets were only for the foundation. They were only for the first century, only for the pre-canon era until the New Testament was complete. But now that we're in the age of the local church, we have evangelists and we have pastor-teachers. See. Any questions on that? Is that clear? The pastor-teacher gift, by the way, is a hyphenated gift. There's only four somases in that verse, okay? Or if you want the technical Greek, we can look at that too. But he gave some as, number one, apostles, some as, number two, prophets, some as, number three, evangelists, and then some as, that's the fourth and final some as, pastors and teachers, Okay? And uh, there's not a fifth sum as for the teachers. It's only the fourth sum as that covers the pastors and the teachers. Okay, And there's aspects on that that if you've ever studied Greek, the Granville Sharp Rule and some other principles of grammar that, that apply there. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So every gift edifies, but these gifts equip. Right? We all should be building up one another, but these gifts are the equipping gifts. And that becomes a distinction as well. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that's a high standard. All right, we have a question here, Chris, if you could run the microphone, please. Thank you. The back row.
What scriptural reference could be provided to state that apostles, the offices of apostles and prophets have stopped? Oh, um, that I think we, and we're going to cover that in charismatology coming up. But uh, it's the nature of the temporary gifts versus the permanent gifts. And that we'll, we'll be discussing as it relates to foundations, as it relates to the signs of a true apostle, as it relates to the signs and wonders of the early church. So if you will allow me, I will defer that until we get there. Alright, now, we talk about propelling into the overseer office and the elder maturity status faster than the other gifts. And these equipping gifts, we find that these uh, these men that are placed as as gifted as pastor teachers and they're trained as pastor teachers and they study and they're learning the Greek and the Hebrew and the theology and they're preparing, you'll find that uh, at younger biological ages, see, that they're going to be vested in this office. They're going to be entrusted as overseers in a local church. Right now we're praying for Pastor Dan Craw. Uh, that man was an unbeliever six years ago, right? Seven years ago. I'm losing track of time. Anyway, uh, it was not that long ago, and that man was an unbeliever visiting Austin Bible Church on a Wednesday night. All right? But he gets saved, and the Lord puts him under, under teaching, and he starts growing by leaps and bounds, and he starts becoming convicted of his giftedness, and then he starts soaking it up. Now, don't get me wrong, any believer, if, if you want to study 45 hours a week in the Word of God, hey, knock yourself out, you will grow. <laughs> All right? But most believers don't do that, see? I, I, I'm just so overwhelmed and blessed that my deacons pay me, my flock pays me, so that I don't have to work 40 hours a week. I can study 48 hours a week on average to, to come in here and teach the six times that I do. And that, uh, that too is a blessing. So what I'm really just illustrating here is, is the acceleration comes not as a, a, a mark of, of a superiority or any other kind of goofy thing like that, but just as a consequence of the work and the labor and the nature of conflict that happens. All right, another question up front here. On the questioning, uh, uh, scroll down just a little, <clears throat> or I should say scroll up just a little, where it says, um, um, a little more, uh, supernaturally adapted to the shepherding exper- expectations of the order. That seems to me to deal with the question of what we call the pastor's heart. I would say so. Which... Uh, in which you see in a pastor the uh, I would call I would say excessive <laughs> graciousness uh, the the graciousness and <clears throat> the um, uh, ability to deal with all sorts of people with uh, a real a real love for the people mm-hmm. there are people in the pulpit who don't do that. <laughs> it's very true, and, and uh, so I'm wondering if uh, if you're emphasizing mm-hmm. that aspect of the uh, pastorate. Very much, and in our PMW classes, and our Wednesday morning classes, and the other classes, we definitely do that. And I appreciate you bringing that up because it is it is a function of the gift. The Holy Spirit empowers the gift, and the gift is expressed through the believer. Uh, but it is it, it it is also something that has to be modeled by the older man to the younger man, and it is something that has to be trained and developed. Um, and Paul addresses that with respect to Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, and uh, when he talks about sending Timothy to you shortly, uh, 
so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. And he says, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And I think this is a part of the training that goes involved to be able to recognize a spiritual gift, to be able to identify a pastor-teacher by gift, but then to nurture that and to train that and to model that shepherd's heart. It says, um, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. It says, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so, Thinking has to be adjusted, and, and priorities have to be trained, and, and the example has to be set, and the young man has to see that, and then it has to be developed. And, and in a young man who may be tops of the class in Greek and Hebrew and theology, and maybe, uh, maybe just uh, eloquent in the pulpit, and may have everything else going for him, until this shepherd heart is, is harnessed and trained and developed, that man's not ready for ordination. That man still needs to grow. He needs to be humbled, and there's things that will that will trip him up. So seeking after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, that's a pride thing. And, and especially a young guy, if he, is, uh, if he is a gifted speaker, if he is a natural orator, if he's got some other things going for him, he's got to get this nailed down. And that's a humility aspect. And the older man has to craft that in the younger man. It says, for you know of his proven worth that he served me with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And that, that Paul-Timothy model is, is so vital. And that's why I love the local church seminaries as opposed to uh, more you know, graduate school type seminaries because you've got you to have that Paul-Timothy model. And uh, we see it there illustrated. And then um, also in, in uh, 2 Timothy where he says, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, that's another principle that shows that the older man is, is nurturing that within the younger man. That's what Ralph pounded into, into me, into Stan, into all of us. Uh, he modeled that, he lived that, and he made sure that that was, that that was being developed, that shepherd heart. So I appreciate, appreciate pointing that out. The, um, back to the evangelists and pastor teachers. Also notice, when you look at, at Ephesians chapter 4, this passage is not talking about the Holy Spirit giving gifts to believers. This passage is talking about Jesus Christ giving gifted believers to particular local churches. Because He, that's Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, gave some as, and these are the, the gifted believers that He's giving to particular localities, to particular flocks. And that's, this, that's what sets this passage apart from Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Timothy 4, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 4, or any other spiritual gift passage you want to look at. The Ephesians is not talking about the Holy Spirit giving a gift to a believer. It's talking about Jesus Christ giving a gifted believer to a lampstand. Evangelists and pastors that are assigned to local churches as gifts from Jesus Christ to those lampstands, to those local churches. That's uh, an important distinction as well. All right, so uh, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ assigns these gifted believers to local churches for the edification of those local churches. And so uh, evangelists and pastor teachers today continue to be given. Uh, men with these gifts may be appointed to the office of overseer at younger biological ages than men with other spiritual gifts. Men with these gifts may be set apart for full-time financial support sooner than overseers with other gifts. Men with these gifts may serve in the office of deacon while they train and prepare for the office of overseer. Ralph made me a deacon. 
And my gift was pastor-teacher, but while I was still training that gift, until I was ready to take a local church, I served as a deacon. I like doing the same thing. I've got B3 on as a deacon right now, and Dan has served as a deacon, and LaRosa served as a deacon. We've had other men serving as deacons. Cliff Beveridge served as a deacon while he was preparing to be a pastor-teacher, and I love that. And there's kind of an earthly model, too, that goes with that. And the best officers I ever had in the Army were... uh, commissioned officers that had previously been enlisted men. They'd been NCOs or sergeants, and then they worked their way into officer candidate school, and they became commissioned officers. And they were the best officers I ever served under because they understood what the enlisted guy was going through. They'd been there. They'd done that. And uh, and so we've got the example of Philip. Philip was Philip the Evangelist, but before he was Philip the Evangelist, what was he? He was Philip the Deacon, all right? And we have uh, we, we see that transition so in Acts 21.8, he's Philip the Evangelist, but back in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the first of the prototype deacons that we have there in, in Acts chapter 6. So to, to finish out this thought, Philip the, received the spiritual gift of evangelist the moment he was saved. But after being tested, he served in the office of deacon. And then ultimately, he grew into the maturity status of elder and the interrelated office of overseer in the local church that was there at Caesarea which we see during Paul's travels there in Acts chapter 21. Timothy is another excellent example. Although still biologically youthful, Timothy was gifted, trained, and placed into office as an overseer in the local church at Ephesus, and probably much younger than many of the church members that were there. That's why it says, let no one despise thy youth. He was expected to appoint other such overseers as well as deacons in that local church. So a young man, notice, a young man still growing into maturity status may be placed in the office of overseer as a consequence of his spiritual gift. All right? Yes, ma'am. The overseer is the office. The overseer is the... That person shepherds. That person oversees the flock of God. That person, in fact, Acts chapter 20, again, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God. We have several. <laughs> Myself and, and Glenn Carnegie are formally vested in the office, and then, of course, Warren is, is an elder by maturity status as well. What did I say? Verse 28. The church of God, which he, uh, has, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the, the church of God. So it's an office. You've got the office of deacon. You've got the office of overseer. Again, Philippians 1.1. See, that's the thing. We have the terminology of the pastor and the deacons, and that's what we have locked into our uh, so many church constitutions for so long, particularly with the congregational mode of governance that, that developed in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So, um, but when, when you read Philippians 1.1, it's, it doesn't say to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the pastor and his deacons. It says including the overseer, right? The overseers and deacons. He may have any spiritual gift, but he will be shepherding. He will be overseeing, yes. Good questions. I appreciate these questions. And, and these are questions, again, that, that um, we, we hammer out in this class, we hammer out in basics, we hammer out in PMW. We, we come back to this again and again and again, and, and we want to be clear. And, and I think it's neat that we, we were able to... Um, edit our constitution. We were able to issue the 2014 revision that we did. 
Uh, we, we tried to take out language that was not biblical and, and replace it with New Testament terminology, for example. I can't find a system pastor anywhere in the New Testament. So why is it in our Constitution? All right. Um, so we were able to modify things to, to have the office of overseer, the maturity status of elder, a plurality of elders, to keep how we function as, as biblical as we possibly can. All right. So Timothy's the example. Gifted, had the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. He trained and was placed in the office of, of an overseer. See, he was expected to appoint other overseers. He was expected to appoint other deacons and elders and so forth. Even though he was still biologically youthful. All right? Front row. In the in the Greek, is the term overseer used in the Greek language? Or how is it used outside of ecclesiology and church polity? And oh, it's used in a lot of senses, yeah. It's Political, just, military, uh, masters to slaves, exactly. So yeah, it's used, it's used in a variety of applications. Yep. All right. So... Um, All these are excellent questions, and I appreciate all of these. So the overseer elder may have any gift. The shepherding function of the overseer elder makes it natural for men with the gift of pastor-teacher to be placed in that office. Um, All right. Both the pastor-teacher and the evangelist by gift will naturally fall into the office of overseer as per Ephesians 4. But other non-preaching, non-teaching elders are certainly possible. As a matter of fact, the expression in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well, that right there tells you that there are elders who don't rule at all. And then there are elders who do rule. And they rule without teaching and preaching. Because the ones who, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, those are the ones that you're going to put on salary first. They're going to be worthy of the double honor. So the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Not every elder is going to preach and teach. Not every elder is going to oversee. They're going to rule. Okay, But the ones who do would be the first ones to be considered worthy of this double honor. So these are, these are passages that we put into the, into the mix as well as we reconcile these things all together. You want to have some fun? Try to find an elder for me in 1 Timothy 3. You can't do it. Try to find an overseer for me in 1 Timothy 5. You can't do it. <laughs> okay? And I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote 1 Timothy, did some marvelous... Um, had some poetry in his writing and had some marvelous expressions and he deliberately kept the elder terminology totally missing out of chapter 3 and just left it with overseers and deacons. And then when he gets to chapter 5, he totally leaves out overseer. But he talks about elders and the plurality of elders and those who rule well and those that preach and teach. And, and this is not accidental. This is by design. So that we can fit these things together in a, in a cohesive way. All right. So this is not to unduly exalt the pastor-teacher above all other gifts. This is absolutely not the case. Every gift is needed for the benefit of the body. This study actually encourages the evangelist, the exhorter, the leader, the administrator, the teacher, etc., to serve in the office of deacon during their maturity status of young man and then enter into the office of overseer when they, quote-unquote, retire from their ministry as deacons. 
or when they are promoted into the vocationally full-time ministry upon their maturity status of elder. And so you could think of the, the deacon role and then the, uh, as, as Glenn Carnegie served as a deacon for so many years and then stepping into an overseer office at a certain point of time um, in a capacity. I, I can easily see Doug doing that someday as a, as a gifted evangelist. And uh, when it's time for him to lay down the, the deacon responsibilities and hand the deacon responsibilities off to younger men, that he may step into an overseer capacity in, in that office, all right? The office of overseer, whereby he can become my partner, he can become my helper, and, uh, and, and serve in those labors, see? I wanted to do that years ago with Hugh Hatley. Why was Hugh Hatley climbing ladders at 75 years of age, you know? Come on, Hugh, let the younger guys do that. But we didn't have the office of elder back then. Our constitution was limited to deacons, pastor, assistant pastor. See, would have loved to have done that with, with Warren 20 years ago. See, So this is something that we're a little bit late coming to, but now that we have it, I'm thankful that we have it. We're able to, we're able to uh, make use of it. That's why I took Glenn Carnegie out of the deacon office and put him in an overseer office. He can help me. He can help me teach Greek, help me teach Hebrew, help me to, to shepherd, help me to, to deal with folks that need to be dealt with on an overseer-type basis. And that's what we get to in this next section with plurality and singularity. Plurality of elders, singularity of angels. That's the Revelation 2 and 3 model where we have one per, seven and seven. Seven angels, seven lampstands. Seven stars held in the right hand of, Je- of Jesus Christ. All right. Any other questions before I get lost in this? So essentially, we have the office of overseer. We have, which, which is minimum one, maybe more, not necessary, but at least one. It's spoken of in the singular in Titus. It's spoken of in the singular in First Timothy chapter 3. Whereas elders are plural in both places. All right. Local churches in the age of the apostles ha- often, always, had a plurality of elders. And we see it throughout the... It's, it's undeniable. Um, and, and, and a lot of men make this point. Okay, um, Alexander uh, Strzok, I think his name is, that wrote the, the Principles of Biblical Eldership. Great book. But he misses some of the detail when he stresses a lot of this because a lot of what he's observing here is during the age of the apostles. There are apostles on hand. Let me double check that author's name for you. Yep. S-T-R-A-U-C-H. Alexander is his first name. Alexander Strzok. Principles of Biblical Eldership. If, uh, nope, don't do that. Biblical eldership, an urgent call to restore biblical church leadership. And this, this goes back to the late 80s, early 90s. Um, it swept through evangelical circles, uh, became required reading at Dallas and other seminaries, and it is the model that's used by what I call modern Dallas. And so Hill Country or other Dallas seminary-type churches in town, they will follow this Strzok model on build a biblical eldership, which is useful but needs tweaking, and that's why we tweaked it. We'll talk about that more as well. All right. 
Uh, multiple elders did not cause confusion in the apostolic age or violate the need for orderliness as every elder fell into the authority of the apostles. And while the apostles were on hand, they were able to, to administrate things uh, effectively and orderly. They would take elders from here, move them to there. They would move Titus to Dalmatia and send Zenus or somebody to Crete and, and constantly be moving people around. The elders, the plurality of elders, always answered to the apostles during the apostolic age in the early church. Beyond Paul's instructions in the pastoral epistles, we have the Apostle John that gives us tremendous insight into post-apostolic local church polity. And that's why I view Revelation 1, 2, and 3 so critically, because it truly represents the post-apostolic age. As John is writing it, he is the last living apostle. And so, as strange as this may sound, the pastoral epistles are not the best or final word on local church polity because the pastoral epistles are still written during the apostolic age. And the context and the setting for it is still the apostolic age. But Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is the final word, the final word in all of Scripture and the final word on church polity given the expectations of how local churches operate without any more apostles on the scene. So Revelation 2 and 3, there were seven churches. Each of these local churches undoubtedly had a number of elders. Nevertheless, in each case, there was one and only one man that was held in Jesus Christ's right hand, and he was addressed as the angelos, the angel of that particular local church, right? The angelos, or the messenger. If you don't like the word angel, use the word messenger, all right? Uh, angel is a transliteration, messenger is a translation of what an angelos is. This is a messenger with a heavenly message. And that's what I am. I'm a messenger with a heavenly message. Every time I teach the Bible, I'm delivering a heavenly message, okay? But I don't have wings and I'm not a spirit being from heaven, okay? But you can still call me an angel if you like. It's kind of humorous in some respects. Uh, but there it is, okay? So we are angeloi. And notice, of the seven ang- angels, it's, it's one per. Seven churches, seven angels, seven stars held in his right hand. It's only one per. So there may be a plurality of elders, that's great, but it's one per. And that right-hand messenger is the one that Jesus Christ holds accountable. If there are problems, if there are corrective measures, if there's apostasy, if there's a Jezebel woman, if, if something is going wrong in that lampstand, Jesus Christ does not go to the presbytery, he does not go to the body of elders, he does not go to a committee. He goes to one guy and says, you've got to deal with this. I'm sorry? Including Ephesus, that's right. One guy who left his first love. Yeah, what happens when the pastor loses his first love? Okay, church is in trouble. So, in each case, there was one and only one man held in Jesus Christ's right hand and addressed as the angel of that particular church. And this is ultimately, each letter is not addressed to the church, it's addressed to the angelos of that church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And then the personal rebuke goes to that angel. It doesn't go to the church at large. It goes to that angel, that messenger. Verse 1, verse 8, verse 12, verse 18, and all these verses. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? To the angel of the church of Pergamum, right? And so forth. Now, in a given local church, if a given local church has three pastors, for example... Say, uh, and we got multiple pastors because we've got gifted pastors, by the way. And once you identify a man in training with that gift, what do you got? You got multiple pastors in the local church. Okay, but that young man 
you identify as a student, as somebody under training, and, and clearly he's not the right-hand messenger. So two of those pastors must acknowledge that they fall under the pastoral authority of the one angel or messenger that Jesus Christ holds in his right hand. And so when we had Glenn Carnegie Sr. here, we had John Miller here, we had you know other gifted pastor teachers here, there's no question, there's no um, discrepancy in the chain of command, or there's no infighting, see... In our common terminology, these pastors are referred to as assistant pastors. Again, that's the old constitution we used to have, and there's no assistant pastor anywhere in the New Testament. And I felt stupid referring to Glenn Carnegie Sr. as an assistant pastor. I mean, that's insane. The man was 70 years old. He'd been in the ministry 40 years or 45 years. Um, to me, the, the language of assistant pastor just seemed demeaning or, or insulting or, or or inferior or something. It just it bothered me a lot. I said, we really need to have a plurality of elders terminology so that we can, uh, in, in the office of overseer, so that we can use biblical terminology instead of these invented uh, expressions. All right. Question over here. In New Testament terminology, all three men would be considered overseer elders, but only one would be considered the angel of that local church. Yes, ma'am. Um, if I'm not understanding correctly, is this kind of like some churches that have like like youth pastor and all these different pastor like type of? Uh, that actually amplifies the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they have an executive pastor and a youth pastor and an elder care pastor and a visitation pastor. Yeah, it's like the lead pastor and the this pastor and the youth pastor right. and I don't know. Yeah, and then so it's kind of happened as a function of I think modern corporate mentality in the United States where we were assigning executive functions and other other functions to. And none of that can be validated with New Testament vocabulary of, of any sense. But you could think of it as a plurality of elders in, in, that, in that sense. And then the, what they would then call the senior pastor is, is most likely the, the right-hand messenger held okay. in, the, in the right hand of Jesus Christ. Okay. So in, in like here at ABC, we're basically overseer, uh-huh. right? And, you know. Right. The overall office then is the office of overseer. Overall office of overseer. Right. All right, thank you for coming. You're welcome. It's also kind of created niche industries and it's created um, certain career tracks in, in different things. And And Hugh Crowder kind of tipped me off to this years ago. He thinks some of this was actually developed by um, senior pastors trying to divert some of the, uh, you know, an idea that people were out for their jobs kind of a thing. And so you, you put them in these other, other tracks so they can become a youth pastor, they can become an executive pastor, and, and it, was, it was less of a threat to the, to the senior pastor kind of thing. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, Hugh Crowder kind of had that as a, as a ponderance that he was supposing once upon a time. Yes, sir. You mentioned uh, Ralph serving under someone who had the gift of evangelist. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Who was uh, serving as the teaching elder in the church. Mm-hmm. Now, Ralph having the gift of pastor teacher, would he uh, have taken possibly someone in that position, not necessarily him, uh, mm-hmm. take over the pastoring or shepherding responsibilities that the evangelist may not be uh, gifted to carry out? I would expect very much. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So would be a, a right-hand deputy to that to that uh, evangelist in that office. Uh-huh. So you might have, instead of multiple pastors, well, 
would you have multiple shepherds take on these uh, youth, uh, elder, elder care, so forth duties? Conceivably, yeah, as a model, certainly. Or you may have some mercy showers. You may have some uh, believers with a gift of mercy showing or believers with a gift of uh, encouragement. Uh, the gift of exhortation. You may you may identify a lot of different gifts that you would then place in that office and in that role. That's right. Exactly. All right. Another way to think of it is that the angel is the one overseer elder in the local church who does not fall under the authority of any other overseer elders. He, he, he falls immediately under the Lord Jesus Christ as he is held in his right hand. So say we have four elders or we have, we have Warren, we have Glenn, and we have me, for example, presently at Austin Bible Church. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not right to say, and here's where Strzok goes wrong, and this is what you'll read. MacArthur uses this model. A lot of people use this model. And they will say, of our fellow elders, no one is in authority over any of the others. So MacArthur is not in authority over any of his fellow elders. He's one of several, one of 20, I think, at, at that church there in California. Um, and, and if you go and you see their portraits on the wall, they're alphabetized. They're not... Uh, placed in a pyramid or a hierarchy of, of any sort. And they will tell you, MacArthur is no greater than, no, in, no authority over, no, not superior to any of the other men. And, and they say that, I think, with kind of an implicit understood, everybody knows that's MacArthur's church. All right? They know he's the number one guy. They know that he's the one that has been there the longest and preached the most. He's preached more than 4,000 times. He's, he's written these books. He's been on the radio. He's built that, that ministry, that church, that seminary. You know, de facto, he is the right-hand messenger held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. Everybody knows that, but they don't say that. And I think that's, that's wrong. Go ahead and say it. Revelation says it. Revelation says Jesus Christ walks in the midst of every lampstand and he holds the stars in his right hand. There's nothing wrong with saying that because that's the one who's accountable. That's the buck stops here. That's, that's where it is. So when you have a plurality then, let's say you have three, two of those three have to recognize that they fall under the authority of that one guy. Two out of those three recognize they have human shepherds on this earth. It's only the one who does not have a human shepherd on this earth because they're held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. Who's my pastor? See, I can tell you who Warren's pastor is. I can tell you who Glenn's pastor is. I can tell you who Doug's pastor is. See, but the one member of Austin Bible Church that does not have a human pastor on this planet is me. Because the Lord is my shepherd, right? I'm held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And that's the model. So we have a plurality of elders but we have a singularity of right-hand angeloi, the, the right-hand angelos that's held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And that might be the simplest way to think of it in those, in those terms. Okay? What about women? What about women? All right, the last paragraph, or the last couple paragraphs. Wow, the last three paragraphs. Um, what about women? Big tendency today, of course, we live in a feminized society and much of our culture is going that direction. But does the New Testament go that direction? Does the Bible validate the direction our culture is going? And it does not, all right? Uh, In Christ there is no male or female, and thus we have gender equality within the body of Christ. In terms of authority, orderliness, however, Jesus Christ has established that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man, all right? In, notice, 
the operation of a local church, 1 Timothy 2.12. There's no expiration date for this, and it's not cultural to the first century. It's not limited to Ephesus or a particular locality where maybe there was a local problem that was, that was an issue. No, it's normative. Paul writes this on a normative basis. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve to prove his point. And so in the illustration with Adam and Eve and in the exhortation that comes here in this chapter... We view this as, as, as the Holy Spirit revealing this as normative for the totality of the church age. All right? And uh, so we see it is not a social peculiarity limited to the first century. It's not something that's outdated uh, by the 21st century. We don't need to update 1 Timothy any more than we need to update Leviticus. And we need to update other passages of Scripture where modern sensitivities want to redefine sin and say, well, that's not sin anymore. It used to be sin, but we're modern now and we understand things better than God understood it when He wrote the Bible. No, God doesn't change. His standard doesn't change. Uh, right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. Sin is still sin. And positionally, there's no male or female in Christ, but operationally, our women are still having the babies Okay, uh, and operationally, the men are still expected to be the leaders in the local assembly. That there is no the overseer is always a masculine singular gender in the New Testament, and uh, we have First Timothy two twelve, we have First Corinthians eleven. There's other passages that speak to this. All right, that's not saying that they're inferior. It says it's a different function. It's a different role for the women in the local assembly. Um. It's a principle that stems from the pattern of authority and helpmate structure of Adam and Eve. How they were designed. Male and female, he created them. All right, We don't have 65 genders, we have two. Male and female. And that's uh, how they were created. And the woman was created for man's sake. She was brought to the man. It was not good for the man to be alone. The man needed the woman in, uh, as the helper. All right, Sounds like a wedding I preached. All right. Now, women in the apostolic age of the church did receive the spiritual gift of prophecy. And Philip had four prophetess daughters, and, and they did speak. It was a communication gift, and they did speak. When they did speak, they had to have their heads covered. There's the head covering, see, in a tradition that sometimes exists to this day in different denominations and, and traditions. They will put uh, you know, uh, uh, some uh, groups, uh, Mennonites and, and other groups, will have uh, veils or head coverings, little bonnets or hats or things of that nature. And all of that goes back to the first century uh, as it related to the office of the prophetess, um, something that no longer happens today. So it's not, strictly speaking, necessary in the post-apostolic age, but as a custom and a practice and a tradition, um, they're doing what they're doing. All right. Um, so the practice was for them to do so with heads covered so as to make very clear in the angelic conflict they were not usurping the place of the men in the local assembly. And in the event where there were multiple prophets who were communicating to a local church, the prophetesses were to remain silent. All right, Even though they were prophetesses by gift, even though they had communication ministry, the fact was in those cases, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 then, uh, because there were multiple prophets on hand, they could evaluate themselves, evaluate the prophetic word, and the women then were to remain silent. Women are to keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. They're to subject themselves as the law said. Okay? That's a passage, by the way, too, that we put into the mix with the prophetesses in the 
early church. So all these passages together make clear in the present age of the local church, um, we don't have female pastors. There are no more prophetesses. But what if we have an evangelist? Could a, could a woman be an evangelist? Yes. Could a woman be an exhortationist? Could she have the paraclesis gift whereby she can encourage and comfort and exhort? Yes. See, because it would not be in an office over a local church necessarily and, and at all, right? Uh, what about a teacheress? Okay, uh, all these gifts, yes, uh, a female can be in all these gifts other than, of course, the pastor-teacher gift, the office of overseer um, related to that. All right, any questions on that? That gets uh, me in trouble in certain denominations. I have family members, actually, that don't like this idea. Not Texas family members. All right, yes, ma'am. Well, I'm wondering whether I should have my husband ask this question because of uh, 1 Corinthians. <laughs> right, there you go. Well, we're not in a prophetic conference right now, so don't worry about it. That's a great observation, though. Well, I'm just... Uh, like the... the First Corinthians, uh, what is that? The fourteen, 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 thirty-five. That that does kind of, you know, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at at home, mm-hmm. for it's improper for a woman to speak in church. And I just kind of. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is in a context where there are prophetesses and, and there are plural prophets. All things are to be done in order, and um, let two or three. So we start off with tongues, and you know how, how chaotic would it be if 30 people with tongues all started babbling at the same time, and four or five prophets all standing up and, and stood up and started prophesying at the same time. So there was, uh, this was a pattern that Paul was giving so that all things can be done properly and in an orderly manner. So beyond tongues, uh, let two or three prophets speak. Now, what if they have four or five prophets? Well, too bad. We're going to take just two or three and, and start with there, and... Let the others pass judgment. So there's two or three that are able to prophesy and say, thus saith the Lord, and and give a New Testament exhortation. And then maybe you've got eight other prophets in the church, and they're not included within the two or three that are speaking, so they get to become the the ones that pass judgment. They're the ones that are going to give a confirmation, or they're going to give an amen, or they're going to acknowledge, like with word of wisdom, word of knowledge, discerning spirits, those gifts as well, right? So let the others uh, pass judgment. But... If a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. They're going to go in order. They're going to go one by one. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. This gives the checks and balances, gives the review, this gives the confirmation, by the way, that that, uh, it says the Holy Spirit communicating, not a demon or a false prophet. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women, now in context, we're talking about every woman in the church. We're talking about prophets or the woman prophets in the way we call them the prophetesses, Mm -hmm. such as we had back in chapter 11 with their heads covered. Uh, Women, however, keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. We wouldn't have them evaluating the ministry of those prophets like the fellow prophets were, were uh, grading one another, or they were not grading, but they were, they were validating one another in, in, that, in that operation. So that's, that's kind of a short five-minute answer to what we spent hours and hours in. Uh, there's a First Corinthians notebook in the hallway, and there's a whole First Corinthians class on the website where we, uh, we went through this chapter in, in some length. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Okay. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely, you're welcome. 
I'm going to wrap this up uh, because this is our last paragraph uh, before we get to charismatology. So next week we can begin charismatology. What about denominations? The last little bit here. Um, there is no New Testament basis for any structure of hierarchy above or outside the local church. All right, none. There is no New Testament basis for it. And there is New Testament basis hostile to the idea. Because um, not only for the passages you see there, but my favorite is, is uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It says that each lampstand should be training the next generation, should be bringing up the next body of leaders. Uh, we're not to just take a young man and ship him off to a seminary somewhere or send him to... It doesn't say send them to the Pope in Rome so that he has the right kind of uh, ordination, that he had the laying on of hands can, can imbue the appropriate apostolic succession. No, it says you train him right then, right there in your local church. Um, likewise in Acts 11 or 2 Corinthians 8 or all these patterns that we have, Revelation 2 and 3. Each lampstand was autonomous. Each lampstand operated. And, and you notice the, the pastor at Smyrna was not subject to the pastor at Ephesus or Thyatira or anywhere else. All seven of those angeloi, those angels of those churches, were held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. So the only, the only hierarchy, if you want to think of it, is, is local church, the, the right-hand messenger in the local church who answers directly to Jesus Christ. And so the idea of a denomination or a structure or breaking down the planet into, into regions or dioceses or archdioceses or any of this other stuff is um, it, it's something that happened in church history, but there is no New Testament sanction for any of it. All right, and we want to be clear on that. So each individual star of each individual lampstand is equally within the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we may cooperate, we may fellowship, we may team up, we may pool funds, we may send mission, missionaries out, and we've got New Testament sanction for all of that. But the idea that it's all voluntary between local assemblies and uh, there's no authority being ushered. We can't, you know, Corinth can't uh, dominate Philippi and demand how much money they send to this effort say, or anything of the sort. They can all contribute mutually and volitionally and cheerfully, but it's uh, on a mutual cooperation basis between equal lampstands. There's no hierarchy involved in, uh, in any of that. Apostolic jurisdiction over multiple local churches ended when the apostolic age of the church ended. And I can't tell you how happy I am for that. <laughs> when Paul says, you know, he has this concern for all the churches, that's just mind-boggling to me. Because I know what the, the shepherding concern is for a single flock and with members of a single flock. And to me, it's just unthinkable to try to multiply that over multiple flocks and including shepherds of those other flocks. And, and that's what the apostle had to deal with was shepherds of, and elders and overseers in all those flocks and in all these things. John had authority over seven local churches. That, that's staggering to me. And, uh, and had to rebuke five of those seven uh, Ungaloi, right? Uh, five of the seven received a rebuke. Anyway, that's to me that's staggering. Or, or to turn somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Wow. There's a prerogative I'm glad I don't have. <laughs> okay? Uh, there's some apostolic authority and power there that does not carry across to the pastor teacher of the church age. I don't see it in, in the New Testament anywhere, so I've never tried it um, because I don't think it's a biblical, it's a, it's a pastoral practice. It was an apostolic practice. In, uh, in that regard. All right.
Next week, we'll uh, reach the tenth and final development of, uh, of uh, basics, and that is the uh, doctrine of spiritual gifts. And here we're going to explain why apostles and prophets and tongues and all those temporary gifts, nine of them were temporary, eleven of them are permanent, and uh, we'll delineate that as well. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for each one that made it out here tonight, Father, and we rejoice in your faithfulness. I thank you for the uh, uh, blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.